0: The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. But there's so much in here that I want to cover for this morning. You know, Paul writes to these Galatians and he planted this church and he is writing to them to encourage them, to strengthen them, and really to correct them because this church that he planted is now being influenced by many other teachers. So Paul came in as a as a teacher and as a pastor and church planner, And imagine this, he leaves and then some other pastors come in and are teaching things contrary to what Paul had established and how he planted this church. And so he's correcting them. He's seeking to encourage them and rebuke them and, and set, set things as they ought to be. And have you ever received a letter from a friend in the mail and kind of halfway through the letter, you just stopped, took a break and put it away for another day and said, I'll come back to the rest of that well that's somewhat It's kinda of what we're doing here is each week we come back to this letter and so we do miss out on some I mean the great thing would be to sit down and read the book of Galatians every single time we sit down and come together uh, but it's super long and and would be maybe a little impractical for for this morning but it's good for us to realize how does this fit into the context of the rest of the letter because he's writing this letter to his friends and it's right for us to see it as a letter and so I wanna just recap in one sentence We're taking 12 weeks through this letter. I want to recap in one sentence. Where have we been so far and where were we last week? And here it is. Here's a very brief recap of where we've been so far. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he lived our life so that by faith in Christ, we are treated as if we lived his. Now imagine this. To embrace that, to really believe it, to really understand that and apply it to our life, what that means. The implications are are broad and vast and 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 incredibly transforming, to live a life really believing that Jesus was treated like us, so that by faith we would be treated like Jesus. Pretty amazing. And that's where we are. Salvation is more than just a forgiveness of sins. It's more than just relationship with God. It is a means of our bond of unity and peace and friendship with God forever. And this is not because we are good, but because of God's grace, His unearned blessing, His unearned promise to us. And so this morning, we learn more about this grace. We learn more about the, the, the um, nature of this grace, the nature of this promise. We dig deeper into it. <clears throat> and as Paul's letter continues, that's what happens. We seem to get deeper into the beauty and wonder and grace of this promise that God has made to us. And one pass through this, this section of scripture, you might be thinking, I, nothing's jumping out at me. If you were to sit down and do a quiet time and, and read this passage, you might think, you know, nothing is popping out at me. Nothing seems to really grab my attention. And I've heard it said that if we are willing to mine and dig through scripture, we will find some real jewels. And I believe that if we dig into this passage, we will come out finding some real gems of Scripture here. And so here's one of my motivations this morning. My motivation this morning is for you to love the Old Testament, for you to love the law of God. And that's not, that's not my only motivation, but that's one of my motivations. As we get through this, I want you to not discredit or disregard things way long ago, the Old Testament and the law of God, but I want us to, to together embrace this, Find life through this and see what it is drawing us to to understand. I understand that among many Christians, the the mentality is Jesus is here, He has come, the old is past, the new has come. Let's move on. Let's 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 kind of do away with the Old Testament. Let's live in light of the New Testament. Uh, they even print now, you know, just the New Testament Bible where you can give the New Testament to others and and. This is, the New Testament is, is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with giving just the New Testament. But there's something in me that says, yes, but there's more to this. There's more that we need. And it is good for us as Christians to not say, the old is old, the new is here, let's move on. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, that's all we need. Because we need to learn from, from what the Old Testament has to teach us. And the, the way that Paul gets us excited about, his, his reader is excited about Christ and the work of Christ is by revealing the significance of Christ in the Old Testament. And that's what he does. And so he breaks up the this passage, he breaks up this passage in two big categories represented by two different people, Abraham and Moses, the promise and the law. And if we can understand these two categories, we can understand the entire Bible. If we can understand the significance of Abraham and the promise, and the law and Moses, we will be able to see the significance of, of all of Scripture, old and the new. And wouldn't you like to grow into a more coherent and understanding, and depth to what the Bible has to say? I mean, I'm assuming that because you're here, you want to learn, you want to learn about God's Word, you want to realize, you want to understand what does it have to say to me and my life. And that's what Paul's motivation is for us, to to have a more coherent and depth to the understanding of God's word. And so here's what we need to understand in order to have a more coherent and understanding of the Bible. We need to understand about the promise of God. We need to know what is the promise of God and why is it significant? What promise has God made? And how do I understand more of this? This promise of salvation is not a new concept. This promise of salvation in Christ is not a new concept. In fact, it is old. It has been God's concept and His promise through all of Scripture, the Old Testament including. The entire Bible tells of this same story, the promise of God for His people. And He calls this a covenant, this binding promise given by God to His people. And He says here, as He starts to explain in verse 15. Let me give you a human example. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it. So how do we understand this promise? How do we understand this covenant? He says, think of a will. Think of a will that's been left to you and a loved one has, has passed on and they've left you a will. You cannot change this. This is a promise that is binding, that has been left for you, and there is nothing that can be done to a change or annul this covenant that has been made to you. And so God's blessing, his relationship, his salvation, his forgiveness, find itself in the significance of a promise that he makes. And it comes to Abraham in verse 8. If you want to go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 8, we learn about this promise to Abraham. It says, It was preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then down here, and we, we see even further, the promise was made to Abraham, and his seed here in verse 16. Here's what he says about seed. Just follow along here in verse 16. The promise was made to Abraham, to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one. The seed is not a people. How would we understand this? This promise, God makes this promise to to Abraham and his offspring. We would think that it means that God's making this promise to to you, and this promise is for all all of your descendants. And so everybody who is born into this family therefore receives this promise. And God's people would grow up in this way, realizing that, okay, this is because we were born into this Israelite Jewish family of God, then we receive the blessings of God, of relationship and peace and unity by being in this family. And Paul says, look at what he says. He said, it's not talking about your offspring as many, but your offspring as one person. These blessings do not come to to all but to these, bless- these promises made with Jesus. In Abraham, we have this first fulfillment of this promise that he would have a great nation, that he would have a great people. But then we see this ultimate fulfillment of the promise that is made in Christ. So the question is, how is God going to bless us? Is God going to bless us by our family? Is God going to bless us by our culture? Is he going to bless us by, by what has happened before us? Paul is saying God is going to bless us through Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise is not in a group of people, but in a single person, in Jesus. And therefore, if we want blessing from God, if we want peace with God, if we want friendship with God, we must go to Jesus. We don't go to a set of rules, we don't go to our family, we don't go to a spouse or to friends. If we want blessing in life with God, we must go to Jesus. And that's the only place that we can find it. So how does this how does Abraham get this blessing? He says that it came through a promise. So let's talk about this promise. This God is making an agreement with Abraham, but a certain kind of agreement. And there are a couple different kinds of agreement. There's a promise agreement and a law agreement. And we need to figure out these are very different. We need to figure out which one which kind of agreement is made with Abraham. The promise agreement says this, if I promise you I'm making an agreement with you through promise that I have a brand new car for you. And all you need to do is believe that I have a brand new car for you. And if you believe, then as you go outside, you will see a car out in the parking lot with a balloon on it and a name and a big red ribbon, and this will be your car. And all you need to do is believe. Now, this is a promise agreement. The promise is that I have a car for you, and if you believe it, it's yours. And then there's something called a law agreement. And this would be, I have a car with, for four you with your name on it in the parking lot and all you have to do is rake all the rock in my yard and if you rake all the rock out of my yard and haul it out of there so that i can uh, add grass or a pool or something like that then you can get a car and so this is a law agreement and so there are two different kinds of agreements the promise agreement for that to be fulfilled is contingent on the person promising making the promise if the person making the promise if i break my promise to you then that promise dies. But in a law agreement, it's based on the promisee, the person who it's promised to. And if you break the agreement, then the promise dies. So if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, the promise you don't get. Now the question is, which kind of promise is God making with Abraham? Is he saying, Abraham, if you live up to the terms of this agreement, if you live up to the terms of this promise, then you'll receive it. Or is God saying, You only need to believe and the promise is yours. Here's what Paul wants us to understand. As soon as two people are a part of an agreement where both people need to hold up to a bargain, then it's no longer a promise agreement, but a law agreement. It's performance and reward. And so which is Abraham's? And which which kind of agreement should we understand the gospel and the promise that God has made to us? God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this to you. He never says to Abraham, Abraham, if you do this, I will do this for you. But rather, he says, I'm going to do this, and Abraham believes, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do we know this? Because the Old Testament tells us this over and over. Let's look at, let's go back all the way where this promise was made to Genesis chapter 15. And we'll have this verse on the screen so you don't need to, uh, you, you don't need to flip. You can just keep your place in, in Galatians if you like. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse eight. But he says this: "Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it?" He says, "Bring me a heifer." Now this is a great thing. God is saying, "Abraham, I am going to give you a relationship, a land, a people, you're hundred years old, you don't have a child, and I'm going to give this to all to you. I'm going to give this to you. What is the best question that Abraham can? Can I ask? Can I get that in writing? Can I get that in writing? And that's what he asks is, how am I to know that this is going to happen? Isn't this an absurd promise? If I were to say, there's a car out there for you, and if you believe it's yours, it would be good for you to have some sort of speculation. How am I to know that you are good on your promise? I mean, this is kind of like an Oprah or something. Like, everybody here gets a car. A good question is, is this for real? How do I know? All I need to do is believe and it's mine. And that's what Abraham says. And we shouldn't see this as Abraham questioning God, doubting God. We shouldn't see this as his, a, a lack of faith or a, a lack of belief. This is a reasonable question. How can I trust that you are trustworthy of this promise? And what he says next is so important. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeons, and he brought them all to God. And Abraham, he cuts all these animals in half. Now I want you to think of this scene as it's unfolding. These animals, and Abraham is sitting there all day just like cutting these animals in half. This is disgusting, it's bloody, it's nasty. And he he splits them open, and he he lays them there. And, And why is this significant? Here's the way two people made a covenant in this time. If you were to make a covenant with somebody, they would kind of seal this deal by cu- bringing an animal and cutting it in half. And what the person is saying is this is how engaged I am. This is how all in. This is how much I promise that if I go back on my promise, let this be done to me. Let what is happening to this animal be done to me. Let me be divided. Let me be cut in half. Let me die. Let me cease to be. It's kind of a modern day, like, I don't know, spitting in your hand and and handshaking. I don't know what else we would do. I mean, how do we do that? How do we say, how can I know you're really, really telling the truth that you promised to do this? Something more than a a bond of our word. Well, this is is how they did it. And so Abraham, I would imagine, I'm speculating, but I would imagine that as God says, bring me all these animals, Abraham's saying, okay, I know what to do here. I'm going to cut them in half. And I, I see where you're going, God. I see where you're going. You're saying that if I don't hold up to my end of the bargain, you are going to do this to me. That you've given me this promise, and, and if I do not do these things you're about to give me, these rules that you're about to, to, to give me, that you are going to divide me. This is a very, very serious thing. So I see where you're going, God. But God doesn't go there. Not once does he say, Abraham, if you do not hold up to the bargain, this will happen to you. But instead, God does something very different. It says that a great sleep came over Abraham. And when he woke, he saw a firing pot, a pot on fire, like a furnace of smoke and fire, and it passes through the center of these animals that were divided. So God, instead of saying, Abraham, if you don't live up to this, you will cease to be, God is saying, if I do not live up to my promise, this will happen to me. And the Bible says God had no better authority to swear by, so he swore by himself. Nowhere do we see that Abraham was given a condition of these promises that were made to him. There's nowhere we see this brighter picture of the nature of the unconditional gospel than in Abraham. And you know what's really great? I want you to love the Old Testament. I want you to know the stories of the Old Testament. Because there is a greater proportion in the New Testament that talk about Abraham than in the Old Testament. The New Testament, to a greater percentage of scriptures and the scriptures that talk about Abraham, are way more than the percentage of scriptures that talk about Abraham in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament talks about Abraham quite a bit. We understand the unconditional nature of the gospel by looking back at what was the nature of this promise that was made to Abraham. And even more so, when God says, not only, these, there, I'm not putting any conditions on this, but if." He says, if you remain faithless, I will remain faithful. Abraham is given no condition of this promise. And what does this say about salvation for us? What does it say about the promise that is made to us? What does it say about salvation and forgiveness? That it is unconditional. And we should ask ourselves, is this relationship with God based on performance or based on grace? Is it based on promise, or is it based on our character? And nowhere more clear do we see than here in the story of Abraham. that it is by promise. And you can trust him. You and I can trust in the promise that God makes. Look here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. What is the outcome of belief in God? What is the outcome of belief in the promise that was made to us in Jesus Christ? Salvation. Peter grew up with this law. He grew up as a Jew. He was a Jewish person and he grew up with all this law and he is saying the promise of salvation is given to us. It is a promise that is obtained by faith. There's this question that I've probably asked of others several hundred times. I don't know how many times, but but in the several hundreds, in the last decade of, of ministry, as I've met with people, people in the church and people outside of the church, and the question that I've asked is, if God asked you today, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And I've asked this question so many times that I've received a, a great variety of, of answers. And I want you to know here, here are some that I've received, more or less, answers to this question. And this is not just non-Christians. These are Christians, people within the church that give an answer like this. Well, I would say, I would probably say 90% of the people give an answer like this. I've tried to live as God has asked me to live. I used to be really bad, but today I'm actually a lot better. I'm not as bad as I used to be, but I've changed quite a bit. I treat people well. I've grown up in the church, and I've wanted to live the Christian life, and I think God would honor that. See, these are answers that I've received probably 90% of people into the church and outside the church. What would Paul say to a question like that? You know, we reviewed this a couple weeks ago. What would Paul say if, if God came to Paul and said, if, why should I let you into heaven, Paul? Let's go back to, to chapter 2, just the last chapter, a couple weeks ago in verse 19. Do you remember what he says? For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's hope for salvation is this. Is it his performance? Is it his rule keeping? Is it his His character, his answer is my hope is Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. That's my reason. That's my reason that I have gained righteousness. That's why I have relationship with God. That's why my sins are forgiven. Because Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Think about the question, the answer that you would give to a question like that. Why does God love you? Why should he love you? why should you have relationship with him? Why should you be with him? Why should you be in peace and comfort and and joy with him forever? And if if your answer, think of that answer, and if you look through all the scripture and you don't find anybody else giving that answer, then your answer is probably wrong. If no one is talking like you in the scripture, then your answer is probably wrong. But what do we see of all the people that come to relationship with God? They always say, look at what God did for me. Look at who I was and what he did. Look at what happened. Look at where I was when he came into my life. Look at how weak I was and how much I was sinning and how how much I was rebelling. And look at what God did. He came to me. He transformed me. He saved me. And we see this over and over again through all the pages of scripture. Everybody who has a relationship with God, we see, look at what God did. And so to think about the gospel and to gospel thinking, it it requires this change of thinking in our own minds and hearts that this isn't about what I have done or what I continue to do, but it's about what God has done and what he promised in Jesus Christ. Now, I said that there were two parts to this equation, that there were two parts of the story, and I've only mentioned one. I I mentioned Abraham and the promise. And and now we should look at that second point real briefly. Imagine Paul is teaching on grace. He's talking about gospel. He's talking about promise. And you're a Jewish person, and, and all of a sudden you're thinking, and this is the right why, right way to think if you're given this message. That it wasn't given through the law, it was given through promise. And I imagine he's saying to, this, to his people and all of a sudden a hand goes up. And they scratch their head and say, Paul, if, if salvation is by promise and by faith and in, 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 in Abraham is a model of that for us, then why 430 years after Abraham God gave us the law. Isn't that a great question? You would think that it would be the other way around, that God gave the law, it didn't work, and then he says, hey guys, the law's not working. You can't earn God's salvation by, by, by law and by merit. So now it's by faith. Let me introduce you to a man named Abraham. But it's the other way around. We see Abraham, and then we see 430 years later, God comes along, and he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the sacrificial law. He gives them Moses. He gives them the whole structure of how people ought to live. And the people are saying, why? Prove to me why. And that's a great question. And Paul goes right there in verse 19. He says, why then the law? Does Paul say, oh, gosh, I hadn't even thought of that? Is God saying, well, that didn't work? Maybe I was too optimistic about people. Maybe I thought that if I said by faith they would be saved, and and maybe I thought they would actually believe that, trust in that, but they became really bad, and so I had to kind of do away with that and come up with a new new system. Is God saying, I didn't realize what I was getting into. It's time to bring down the hammer. It's time to bring down the rules. Paul is saying, good question, let's talk about the law. He says it was added because of sin. It was added because of transgression, verse 19, 20. The law is written because of the presence of sin. You know why? Are, why do we have laws today? We have laws because of sin. We have laws because of transgressions. I remember sitting in a kindergarten class. Uh, we were borrowing a kindergarten class, classmate, kindergarten first grade, and it was a, a Sunday school. And we were there were on the on the wall were basically like the ten rules, the ten commandments of of uh, classroom conduct. Maybe you've seen these before, and they had the usual ones on there. I remember this list because there was one that stood out that was just so peculiar and, and really different from all the others. The, the normal ones were on there, you know, no hitting, uh, no, no shouting, uh, no, no mean talk, no bullying. And then down towards the bottom, I saw one that was, that was just really, really odd, and it said uh, something to the effect of no putting glue in other people's hair. <laughs> and I couldn't help but think, someone did that. Uh, that rule is on that list because someone did that. It's similar to the the bizarre uh, warning labels that you might see, like on your hair, your curling iron that says, do not use in the shower or something like that. Someone did that. And someone did that once, but someone did that. And so they said, okay, we need to have this law. We need to have a rule because of sin, because of transgression, because people get it wrong and people mess up. And Paul is saying the law has come because of transgression. We need to be clear on the purpose of the law because otherwise, if we are unclear on the purpose of the law and why it's here, then we will misunderstand God and what he desires for us. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon, an old uh, pastor and preacher. He says, A hand saw is a good thing, but not to shave with. True, very true. Now, a good thing is not good out of its place. And for so long and in so many ways... Christians, non-Christians alike, we look at the law of God and we misunderstand it. We don't realize why it's there. If we were to put in our own words, well, what's the law of God for? We might say, well, God has given us the law so that if we live by it, we will find favor with God. Do these things, God will like you. Don't do them. You'll find yourself in a world of hurt. And Paul is saying, you're misunderstanding the purpose of the law. What is the law good for? The law... Is a measure. The law shows us what kind of life, it's like this rule stick. It shows us what kind of life is pleasing to God. It is also a mirror. The law is a mirror. If we were to hold up the law to us and and look into it, we would see how much we fall short of what God desires for us. And it would expose our need for a Savior. You see, the Ten Commandments, for instance, the law of God, as we look through this, the purpose of this is to show us what kind of life is pleasing to God, but also to show us that we disobey this law and we need help. We need a Savior. And so the law is, is true and right and beautiful. From the very beginning, it was never, ever said, this is what will save you. But it is always said, it'll show you what God desires, it'll show you how much you fall short, and lastly, the law will be a guide, it will show you Jesus, it will lead you to Jesus, it will guide you to your real salvation. The law is so bad for salvation. The law is so bad for acceptance, the law is so bad for favor and love from God, and yet for some reason, we, all of us included, Christian, non-Christian, we We try to put ourselves in a situation of following the law so that we can be in a better position with God. If I would be a better person here, maybe God would look at me in a better light. If I would do the right thing and stop doing the bad thing, maybe I could be useful in, in ministry. Paul is asking us to be honest with ourselves as we look at the law. He says, look at the law. Admit that you can't do what God has asked you to do. And let's be honest with ourselves, we need a Savior. The law leads us to the promise. And without the law, we can't understand the gospel. The Old Testament is not weird, and then we get to the good stuff. That's what I want you to see. That it isn't yada, yada, yada. I'm so glad that Jesus finally came. Let's, let's just cut that out. The Old Testament, the New Testament, it's the story of God's promise to us. If you want to know the gospel, you need to know the Old Testament. If you want to be a Christian, you need to know what it means to be a Jew. Okay, that, what was all that about? That's my job, I think, as a pastor, to make just absurd comments. And you would to be like, I don't know what that means. What on earth am I talking about? Is this church really confused? No, here's what I mean. We need to know... If we want to grow in, our, in the grace of, of Christ and know what it means to find, find acceptance with God, we need to know how the law is used to continually show us our need for Jesus. And we should love the law. As David says in the Psalms over and over and over again, he says, God, I love your law. Why? Is he just like the teacher's pet? Is he just like a really good student, like, I love your law, I'm going to do what's good. No, he, I love your law because it shows me you. It shows me my own failures and it shows me my solution in you. And if I can live with that understanding every single day, then that is all I need. To live as a Christian by faith is to, no, to look in the mirror and see what God requires and say, I'm glad I have Jesus. You know, if we look at if we listen to the law a little bit, like if we listen to the law with only one ear, we will feel bad about ourselves. We'll feel guilty. We'll say, Man, I, I kinda wish I didn't do that. I wish I was different. I wish I was better. And this is what it feels like when you get pulled over for a speeding ticket. And our friends will help us and they'll say, just don't they'll say, Don't worry about that. You made a mistake. Don't worry about doing the wrong thing. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. And so if we listen to the law with one ear, we, we feel a little guilty, but then we get over it. But if we listen to the law of God with both ears, we will be, we'll be devastated. And then we'll be drawn to Jesus. Because we know we need a Savior. And, and God is serious about drawing us to himself. Why did the law come 430 years after Abraham? Because God is serious about drawing us to himself. He wants us to know him. He wants us to trust him, to believe in him, and to, have, to rest in the promise agreement that he is ours if we believe. Here, here's where we can wrap this up. There's this quote from this book that I've, been, that I've read, um, Grace in Practice, and he says, one of the most fundamental mistakes a person can make is to look to rules to find life. To look at what God has told us to do and say, that's where my life is. But the whole story of the Bible is the life is found when we can admit that we have failed to live the life that God has asked us to live and to rest in Jesus. And here's, where, here's some reflection. Because I want you to take this away. I want you to take it into your life. In what areas, here's this question, in what areas are you most tempted to, be, to perform to be accepted by God? What area in your life, it, it might be even different for all of us, is it the way that you're a, a spouse or a parent or a worker or a neighbor or even a, a Christian in church? Is it, What area of your life says where, where you are most tempted to say, I need to get better at this so that I can just be better with God, better with others, and just a better person? Another question is where do you try to ignore or minimize sin instead of being drawn to Jesus? Do we have those slides up there, Axel? What, where do you try to ignore? Because here's the thing. We look at the sin in our life and we say, I'm just not going to worry about that. I know I've got weaknesses. I, or we say, it's not a big deal. I know, it's, I know that I need to grow, but you know what? Everybody needs to grow. And so we minimize or we ignore our sin. But God is saying the purpose of that law, the purpose of that measure is so that we would be drawn to Jesus and everything. And so I want you to practice about taking that next step. You've taken some good first steps. The first step is, okay, I recognize sin in my life. The next step is, okay, I realize that it needs to be different, but don't stop there. The third step is, okay, I need to go to Jesus. I need to go to him. I need to bring everything I am to him, and I need to rest in this promise. And that's the last question. Where will you apply God's promise in your life? Where will you listen to God today? Because this is of no use to you if you don't believe it. God is a God of promise. Oh, that's so wonderful. Then why do you continually rest in your character for his acceptance? This is where I would charge you and encourage you to go from here. You know what's in your heart. You know the sin that where you're tempted. You know where you're trying to earn favor with God by being a good person. My, my encouragement to you is, okay, when are you going to change that? When are you going to stop believing that? And when are you going to start believing in the promise of God? Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.